Welcome to the PA Books podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. While the focus is always on Pennsylvania, topics like the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Industrial Revolution, the coal and steel industries, and authors like John Updike, David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Michael Smirkanish, author of Clowns to the Left of Me, Jokers to the Right. Michael Smirkanish, author of Clowns to the Left of Me, Jokers to the Right. If someone buys this book, what do they get? <laughs> uh, 15 years worth of stories. I think they get a great snapshot into a post-9-11 American world, and it covers the landscape. It's, it's front-page stories, Brian. I, I, like you, live on a steady digest of politics and news and that which we're also fixated on day-to-day -day from the front page. But there are also a lot of stories about life. There's a, there's a whole Seinfeldian slice that runs through this book. And I would also say I've been so fortunate in living where I live, when I've been living here, and interacting with so many individuals that I guess because of my media role has given me access to some of the more interesting personalities among us. And I write about them and I share perspective about those folks, both Pennsylvanians, Philadelphians, and some national figures as well. Your column, where can it be read? So my column runs today in the Sunday Philadelphia Inquirer. The span of this book is 2001 through 2016. For a portion of that time period, I was writing exclusively for the Philadelphia Daily News. That's where I began as a columnist. And then I began writing for both the Philadelphia Daily News and Philadelphia Inquirer. There was a time period, and this is not unique today, but it was unique when I did it. No one had ever done before writing for both newspapers, even though they had common ownership. And then it was frankly just too much for me to generate all that content and do the other things that I do. So I moved only to the Sunday Inquirer. What do the papers expect you to write? I mean, do you have a beat? No. Uh, great question. And I've never had a beat. I, I've really always had a free hand. When it was Zach Stahlberg, who was the editor at the Philadelphia Daily News, or Bill Maramow at the Philadelphia Inquirer, or Stan Wisnowski, even now, what I've most appreciated is that they've allowed my passion to dictate where I'm going. And my, my passion in a particular week may have been should we support the Iraq invasion? Should we be going after bin Laden in Pakistan? Should we be supportive of the Affordable Care Act? But it also might be allowing me to eulogize my Cocker Spaniel, who was my first dog, or allowing me to talk about my kid's yard sale, or to talk about a trip that I took to Cuba where I met Fidel Castro. And I've really appreciated that flexibility. When you write, do you write at the same time every week? Or are you disciplined like that, or you just sort of pick it up as you can? I am pretty disciplined, but it's like when it comes, then I got to let it happen. Uh, because if I, I find that it's not the sort of thing where I can say, okay, I need to file by Thursday, therefore Wednesday at 5 o'clock will be when I sit. It, it has just never worked that way for me. I, I may, upon leaving you, 
come up with an idea for a column and I better run with it right then and there as opposed to saying here's when I'm going to write about my experience with PCN. It's, it's very much organic. Do you write fast or slow? If I know what I'm going to say, I can write quickly. And what I find is that if I don't have my act together in terms of where I'm going, that's probably not a column I should write. If it's taking me a long time period, I, I'm, I'm, very, uh, uh, I'm very good about seeing something through. So the, the monotony of getting it right is not a problem for me, but I need to know where I'm going. And if it's not in my head that this is the objective that I have for the column, I have learned over the years I should switch gears and go in a different direction. Do you pretty much have the column written in your head before you start typing? Many it? times I do. Yeah, many, many times I, I know here's an issue and, and I want to comment uh, upon it. In, in this part of the 21st century, what is the significance of a newspaper column? Well, I speak for a living, as you know on radio and on television on a day-to-day -day basis. And what I find about the column is that the column forces, at least it should force, more deliberation. It's one thing if I should say off the cuff to you an opinion about a particular issue and people know that we're here and it's rather loose and you asked me and I responded. But when it's in print, when you've taken time to actually put your thoughts in writing, you know, to essentially chisel them in granite, then I feel an added responsibility of wanting to be doubly sure that my research is accurate and that the opinion that I've offered is, is very well organized and put forth. When you see, write your columns and then they appear online, do you read the comments that the readers Never. Leave? And there is a column in the book where I discuss exactly that subject. And in the book, as you well know from, from having read it, it's a hundred of what I consider to be my most memorable columns from the 1047 or so that I published in that 15-year time period. Memorable meaning that I'm proud of it. Memorable meaning I'm embarrassed about it. You know, boy, did I get that wrong. I mean, this is not just me tooting my horn. This is me reflecting on 15 years worth of work. But one of the columns that I wrote was about incivility in an internet world and, and the fact that uh, people today feel comfortable in saying things through their thumbs when their identity is hidden that they would never say if you could see their face. And it's, it's a subject about which I have strong feelings. I, I love the gadgetry. I love the Internet age. I love my, my Apple iPhone and, and Google searches and so on and so forth. But in this one area, I just think that the ease with which we can communicate with one another has led to a debasing of our dialogue. After every one of these columns in the book, I write an afterword. And the afterword is me reflecting on the column. Now, maybe 15 years later, maybe five years later. In the column on civility, I took note of the fact that within 24 hours or so of me having written it, here's the number of comments that were posted at the Inquirer, and I read none of them. Because I just don't find it to be redeeming. When people don't have to sign their name they say things that, that I, I just think many times can't be taken seriously. Well, if you don't read those columns, how do you gauge those responses? How do you gauge whether your column is hitting the target, hitting, saying what you want or being received by Well, anybody? okay, but what is hitting the target? I mean, the hit, me, for me, hitting the target is not giving you something that, uh, that you necessarily agree with. 
that would be an entirely different kind of a, a column if I went, and you're not insinuating that, but if I went looking for how am I going to please people, I would never have said half the things that are, that are in that book. These are opinions that I feel strongly about, that I want to express, hopefully put them forward in a knowledgeable way, but not necessarily to, to get your reaction. Anecdotally, I, I, just because I've lived my entire life in the Philadelphia area and I think I'm accessible and I, I also answer the phone for a living on my 15-hour-a-week radio program, I get tons of feedback. And it's been interesting to me to see over the years what has seemingly struck a chord with people. It's not the front-page news. Do you want your column to change things? Sometimes. Uh, sometimes I, I want my viewpoint to be heard. Uh, and discussed. Sometimes I'm, I'm seeking to just advance a conversation, but there are other times that I, I run, that I write, and I, I absolutely would like to be a, a catalyst for change. Did you find that happening? I mean, when you went through and reviewed all your columns, you say, well, can I know, take credit? Really... You know, can I can I take credit for monumental change? I think I can take credit for advancing <clears throat> a civil discourse. Can I point to something that the Pennsylvania State Legislature acted on that they otherwise would not have? I don't think so. When you were going through all your old columns to pick the ones for this book, uh, were there times when you came across one and said, "Whoop, got that one wrong?" <laughs> Absolutely. Oh yeah, there were there were tons of times that I I look back and I, uh, and, I and I got things wrong, and there were some times that I look back and I, I got things right. Uh, which which greatest hits reel would you like, the right or the wrong? <laughs> Whichever you want. Which which ones made you cringe when you read them? Well, I I found that I had bought into a post 9/11 conspiracy. Uh, relative to the bombing of the Murrah building in Oklahoma City, uh, went so far as to engineer a meeting with Senator Specter when he was still with us, and a, a woman who was then a, a, a catalyst for this belief that Iraq had played a role in the bombing of the Murrah building, which I, I do not believe was the case, but I seriously entertained at the time. I, I, I came to terms with uh, same-sex marriage in a column but I didn't call it marriage in that column. I think that that was probably a, a, a mistake. I mean, there have been any number of columns that I wrote through the years that, that I, in looking back at them, I think that's half the fun of the book, I say, that's not the way that I would have done it. Now, you mentioned your radio program. For people who don't know, how can they hear you on the radio? I'm on Sirius XM's POTUS channel, 124. I deliver that show live between 9 and noon, Eastern, five days a week. It then replays from 9 p.m. to midnight uh, every weeknight. What's a typical show like? Typical show is a, is a show that covers both, very much like the, the, the collection of my columns. A typical show is, is one where I, I cover front page news and as the program progresses, I feel like I've got the latitude to, uh, to explore other subjects. But, but always a steady political diet. Do you have guests on? I do have guests on and take calls and uh, and the guests sometimes take calls as well. Three hours a day. Right. 15 hours a week. It's a lot of content. How much prep time do you At give? least three hours a day. So whatever, whatever amount of time I'm going to be discussing a subject, typically I've spent at least that much time reading in on it so that uh, I'm knowledgeable and, and I'm not going to embarrass myself. You do a program on CNN? CNN, I'm, I'm on Saturday mornings at 9 a.m. for an hour, and that re-airs at 6 p.m., on, uh, on Saturday afternoons. When did you start getting interested in politics? When I turned 18, uh, growing up in Bucks County, Pennsylvania. I, I'm a lifelong Pennsylvanian, and I had some very unique, exciting, 
political experiences at an early age. Uh, believe it or not, with, uh, uh, you know, with, with this look, there was a time when I was the youngest guy in the room. And when I was the youngest guy in the room as an 18-year-old newly minted Republican, I was afforded responsibilities because, frankly, other young people interested in politics went to the Democratic side of the aisle. And so coming of age in the Bucks County Republican Party, I was afforded some great opportunities. I was an advance man for Vice President George Bush when I was in college at Lehigh University. When I was 29, I was appointed to his presidential administration. I was responsible for the Department of Housing and Urban Development in five states and Washington, D.C. And, and in between those experiences have had great opportunities to rub shoulders and work with any number of Pennsylvania and national politicians. You went to law school at Penn? Went to law school at Penn and graduated in 1987. Did you practice law? I did. For 10 years, I practiced law with uh, James E. Beasley, who was a Philadelphia legendary trial attorney and the, the, the subject of a column that I wrote about him uh, when Jim passed. What uh, was it about the Republican Party that attracted you when you were young? I think, like many, I don't know that I put a great deal of thought into which party will I join. It was the party of our household. And when I turned 18, it was the spring of 1980. My father, who had been a public education school teacher and then guidance counselor, threw his hat in the ring for an open seat in the Pennsylvania State Legislature, the 143rd, which was Central Bucks County. So here I am now becoming a new voter, and my dad is on the ballot as a Republican. I don't know that there was any other choice other than I would be a Republican. And I was very comfortable as a Republican for, you know, the, the next 20 years uh, or so, and uh, ran for office myself as a Republican, served in a Republican presidential administration. Ultimately, by the time you get to 2010, uh, 30 years later, it was no longer the party that I felt comfortable in. Why not? I largely got off the reservation because of the way in which the Bush administration had been fighting the war on terror. I, I thought that the Bush administration had taken its eye off of bin Laden and those responsible for the attacks of September 11. And again, you know, what's interesting for me is that I, I think many of us have political views that change over the span of our lives. But for me, at least for a 15-year time period, uh, and then some because I, I still write for the Inquirer. You can go back and you can see where I was at a moment in time. So to the extent my views change, you can go back and you can document them. And you can say to me, well, here's how you felt in 2002. What happened by 2006? So I can see that, that by 2005, 2006, I was unsettled with the way that the Bush, George W. Bush administration was fighting the war on terror. And by 2010, again, the subject of a column, I got out and wrote about the reasons why. You uh, said you ran for office as a Republican? I did. What was the office? 1986, I was a second year law student at Penn, the same seat that my father had run for unsuccessfully in 1980, again, came up in the state legislature. And I thought, I, I then, I desperately wanted a career in public service. Despite the fact that I was in my second year of law school, I thought that the timing might be right. So I ran for it. I lost that primary by 419 votes. As I like to joke, I've since located 236 of those people. Um, it wasn't in the cards for me. But, Brian, it was one of the best experiences 
that I ever had. And if I could relive 1986 in my life, knowing that I would lose, I'd still do it. You didn't they catch the bug and want to make elective office a career? No, I, I, I had the bug. I des definitely had the bug, but I think that between running and then ultimately getting to serve not, not long thereafter in the Bush administration, I, I had a good taste of it. And, and then it was time to, to move on, practiced law for a decade, but always have had an interest in these public issues. And, and whatever itch I need to scratch in that regard, I get it from radio, from television, and from writing. How has running for office changed in the, the past 30 years? Like if you, to run a campaign, if you were to run somebody's campaign now, how would you do it differently than Well, I, I think ago? it's much more impersonal today. I mean, when I ran for the state legislature in Bucks County, and, and the reason why I think it was such a uh, worthwhile process, because to go out and to knock on the door of thousands of people and have to introduce yourself and, and to look inside and see what's going on, you know, that front door is a window into everybody's uh, livelihood, lifestyle, lots of different things. It was a great learning experience. I think it served me well when I was then an attorney and trying cases in front of juries because I'd, I'd met and interacted with so many different people. The answer to your question is, I, I think that today, technology has changed things such that you don't need to go out and, uh, and, and rub shoulders with and shake hands with potential constituents. You can sit back electronically today, especially if you have the funding source, and you can reach people through their Facebook pages and social media feeds, and electronically you can do things that in the past, shoe leather was required. What is gained or lost by that? I think today many politicians are detached from the people that they represent or the people that they seek to represent. For me, there was no substitute to having those one-on-one -on -one personal encounters. I mean, I'll never forget some of the experiences of uh, of what it was like to be 26 years old and running for the state house, in, including the um, uh, including the day 24 years old. I have to check my own math uh, when I took that shot, I including the day that I rang a doorbell in Newtown Borough, Bucks County, and a bird flew uh, above me and. Uh, this is PCN. Can I say crapped sure. on my head? Uh, and so, you know, I heard I heard the footsteps of this homeowner walking toward the front door after I've already rung the bell, and I I'm a mess. And I, I can remember that my parents said to me when I when I got home that night and explained, you know, I'd knocked on 300 doors and a bird crapped on my head, uh, that they wanted to tell me that this was some some sign of of great luck. You know, like I'm going to win this race because a bird crapped on my head. No, a bird crapped on my head, and I lost the race. Going into Election Day, did you think you were going to win? Yes. Yes, I did. Yeah, I, I did. We, Brian, I, I was a law student, but I had, a, I had a campaign headquarters. I had the endorsement of Pennsylvanians for Effective Government, PEG, the Chamber of Commerce. Uh, it was really a, really a well-orchestrated effort. Uh, but I was 24. You know, I was 24 years old at the time, and they, they used that against me. Did you gain insights into what goes through someone's head when they're running for office and asking someone for their vote? I think that I gained so many insights. I mean, just to, to have to get on your feet and walk into meetings and present yourself and try and sell yourself and to, to, to speak knowledgeably about issues, it would have been 
no matter how my life would turn out, I think that would have been great training for, for anything. And the other thing, and I say, this, I say this to young people all the time to the extent I'm ever asked for my advice or I, I, I've been fortunate in having been asked to deliver some commencement addresses. And usually a part of, of the advice I offer is to say, get involved in politics. I don't care if you're a, a liberal, a conservative, a communist, an independent, who cares? Go get involved. You'll learn things about your neighbors, you'll learn things about yourself, and you'll establish a network, a social network, a business network that you can rely on for the rest of your life. Now, your book is titled Clowns to the Left of Me, Jokers to the Right. Does that suggest that you think you're right in the middle? It does, and I am. What does that mean? Well, it, it means that I, I am not buying into the, the, the faux description of talking heads and politicians today that you've either got to be liberal you're either an MSNBC person or you're a Fox person and you're on the right and never the two shall meet. I don't meet people like that unless they have radio shows or television programs because when I'm leading my life and you can say, well, that's maybe a reflection of you living in the Philly burbs and perhaps it is, but when I am leading my life, if I am pumping gas, if I'm doing grocery shopping, which I share with my wife, if I'm at a back to school night, I meet people and they engage me in conversation for whom the issues are a mixed bag. They might be conservative, usually on fiscal issues, and more liberal, usually on social issues. And there are a whole host of things they, they just don't have sorted out. But, you know, to watch the way our debate is structured today, you would think that, that everybody is on one side or the other. And I just think that is a fiction. And that's why that's the title of my book. If, if the people are where you think they are, why does the media then have one network of the hard right and one network of hard left? Because passion rules the day. I do not believe that the fact that, that, that Fox is so strong and MSNBC is so strong, and I'm, I'm leaving out my own network, CNN, only because I, I, I think that so much of the conversation has, the oxygen's been sucked out of the room by the polar extremes. But that's because it's the same reason why, you know, in closed primaries, the people who get nominated are the very liberal Democrats and the very conservative Republicans, because who, who's most apt to come out and to vote, to put up the yard sign, to write the check, to sign the petition, to get the name on the ballot, et cetera, et cetera. It's the passionate folks, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they are representative of the nation at large, because I maintain that they aren't. There's a reason why Gallup, in its most recent survey, found that 45% of Americans are eyes, independents, not Democrats or Republicans. And the whole trend is in that direction. So, yeah, the title of the book is a summation of, of where I, I see myself. Not where I would have seen myself when I started writing columns, but where I see myself today. Where did you see yourself when you started? Definitely as a reliable Republican voter who came of age on Ronald Reagan's watch uh, and uh, was not too tolerant of... Uh, left of center points of view. If you could wave your hand and correct things in the, the media and in the political system right now, what would you focus on? I would want to bring about measures that uh, gave more independent and critical thinkers a fighting chance of getting elected to office. I would want to open primaries. I would want campaign finance reform. I would get rid of uh, sore loser laws. I would encourage people, as I do in the pages of this book, to change the channel. It's okay with me that you're, you're watching MSNBC or that you're watching Fox, but 
for goodness sakes, change the channel from time to time. We've created a system now where people are in these, these bunkers, these silos, where they're existing on a diet of, of MSNBC and Slate and Salon, uh, and maybe the editorial pages of the New York Times and the Washington Post. And then there's this alternative universe of Fox and AM Talk Radio and Breitbart and Drudge. And people are relying on each of those, those extreme sources from one end to the other, but the two aren't meeting. They're not jiving at any point. And I think that Facebook and social media have only accentuated all of that. Uh, so those moments of commonality are, are what's missing. Do you use social media? I do. Good, good or bad force? <sighs> Mixed. Uh, I'm active via Twitter. And so I use, I use Twitter to promote things that are going on on my various platforms and also to offer opinions. Uh, and I use Facebook as well to deliver videos on issues of the day. I find that it's a necessity to to be able to be able to converse with people who are supportive of, of what I've got going on. How do you follow the news? What are your news sources? So if I were to open up my laptop for you, I would be able to show you in, in the, the, the links that I have uh, uh, that I've captured what I look at at 5 a.m. every day. And you'd see probably 30 different news sources that in the, in the scope of an hour, I can move quickly through and make sure that I'm getting a steady diet of the left and of the right and of the in-between. And that's how I do my show prep uh, on the morning of a program. I never stop preparing when the show ends for the following day's broadcast. But at the crack of dawn, I am looking and making sure that I know what is being said by everybody. Do you ever get sick of it or discouraged? I can't afford to get sick or discouraged because there's always a show to do tomorrow. How about this? I can get exhausted with it. I mean, the pace of the 2016 election, not only was I doing three hours of radio every day and my own show for CNN every Saturday, but I also was a panelist for every one of CNN's primary and caucus election nights. I did nine hours on election night with Anderson Cooper as the, as the host. And, and I, I thought, okay, you know, well, at least now we'll all be able to catch our breath when it's over. And then Donald Trump gets elected, and there, as you well know, there has not been a moment of downtime. We're about 450 days or so into this administration, and I don't expect to be able to catch my breath until he leaves after the end of four years or after eight years or, or maybe sooner if, if, if Bob Mueller finds something. Who knows? But the pace of this uh, news cycle uh, leaves me winded. Do you get recognized walking down the street? I do. say, oh, Michael Spokanish. I do. And, and I'll share something with you that goes back to a comment you made about, well, do you read the comments? So the comments that get appended to the columns, I knew from having read them before I finally wrote that one column and said, there's nothing redeeming about this, were largely negative. You know, people don't, people don't append a comment to say, oh, that was terrific, way to go. But in person, I have plenty of people. And the CNN work that I do, this used to be a local phenomena only, that I would be somewhere and people would want to stop and have a conversation. But CNN has changed all of that. So I travel extensively to speak. And when I do, people now always engage me in conversation. Knock on wood, I've never had an unpleasant encounter. I've had 
plenty of people who will say to me, I don't agree with you, I don't agree with your network, or you're unfair to the president, you're too fair to the president, whatever the case may be. But it's always civil. And, and that's why I, I feel so strongly about how all the technology has made it too easy to be uncivil. Uh, your book says on the cover, all author proceeds benefit the Children's Crisis Treatment Center. What is that? So thank you so much for saying that. I, I, I won't make a, a penny on this book. It really is a labor of love. My wife is on the board of CCTC, the Children's Crisis Treatment Center, which is based in Philadelphia. CCTC handles those situations for urban youth who are in crisis. If, if you should read a story in the Philadelphia Inquirer or Daily News about something god-awful happen, having happened to kids or to parents who are now gone and leave kids behind who need assistance, uh, chances are CCTC is the social services arm that steps in. They really do God's work. And so I knew I wanted to write this book. I, I knew what the approach was going to be. I didn't necessarily want to profit from it. But I, I wanted good to come from it, and CCTC is just the, the, the perfect outlet. You had dinner with Fidel Castro? I did, yeah. Close to seven hours in length. I think six hours and 20 minutes long. How'd that come about? Arlen Specter was a friend of mine. I worked for Senator Specter. Senator Specter had written uh, one of his books. I'm trying to think of which one that it was that contained a whole chapter about the Kennedy assassination, the role that he played in the Warren Commission and a trip that he made to Cuba while he was writing years later about those experiences. And when he came on my radio show, I had said to him in passing, if you ever go back, take me, I will sit in the luggage. Whatever it takes, I'm in. Never expecting that he would call as he did during the holidays 2001 going into 2002. And he said, so we were just a couple of months removed from September 11. And he said, I'm going back to Cuba, and if you want to come, you got to pay your own way. You could get credentialed, I imagine, as a Philadelphia Daily News reporter, and I'll take you with me. And, uh, and that's how it all came to pass. And it was one of the most extraordinary nights of my life to be a fly on the wall, actually also someone who was able to question Castro in a formal setting and in an informal setting, but to be able to watch, uh, as I put it, the DA, Specter and the dictator debate political issues three, four months removed from September 11, extraordinary experience. So you were allowed to chip in your own questions? Absolutely. I remember di distinctly. I'll, I'll tell you, uh, Brian, I'll tell you exactly what I said to him, among other things. Because the, the way the night was structured, we, we initially had a very formal meet and greet. And then after the meet and greet, we were in a conference room where the Cubans were on one side and the Americans were on the other. All told, there were probably 12 people in the room. It was not an enormous setting. And then after the, the, the business portion of the evening had ended, we then had cocktails and we had dinner. So I had the opportunity to speak to Castro throughout the course of the evening. And in the business portion, in the across the conference table portion of it. At a certain point, Senator Specter said, uh, Michael Smirconish is with us uh, from the Philadelphia Daily News and, and he might have a question for you. And I remember that the first thing that I said to him was I said to him, uh, Mr. President, and by the way, I, I got hate mail from Cuban Americans for months thereafter. I'll probably get it now again, now that you're asking me to tell this story. But they, they objected, A, 
to me, being civil with Castro. B, how dare you call him Mr. President? He was never elected in any election other than a sham, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But you know, I'm in the man's house, right? I'm, I'm going to ask a question. I'm going to be nice. And I said something to him like, uh, Mr. President, uh, I'm from Philadelphia, from the Philadelphia area. We had a mayor of Philadelphia named Frank Rizzo. He served two terms. And very famously, in the 1970s, he said that his police force, you know where I'm going with this, could, uh, could uh, uh, invade Cuba and win. I said, uh, did you ever hear of that statement? And Castro looked at me. Now, he had an interpreter, but I don't think he needed the interpreter. And he looked at me and sort of stroked his beard, thought about it for a second. He said, I've never heard of such a statement, but it's false. And I thought, nobody, you know, what are you going to ask Fidel Castro that he's not been asked by a journalist? <laughs> the fact that I asked him about Frank Rizzo and the police statement I thought was not so bad. Well, forgive me if I jump around a little yeah, bit sure. in uh, this, but uh, your columns are, each one is different than the other. You, you drank champagne from the Stanley Cup. I did. Uh, I, I told you, I've been very fortunate. I wanted in the book to talk about things I'd gotten wrong about things that I'd gotten right. I wanted to reflect on life, and I also just wanted to be able to share some good stories with people that I thought were worthy of, of retelling. And this is a story about Bill Clement, who was a two-time Stanley Cup champion, who resided, still resides, as far as I know, in the Philadelphia area. And Brian, I don't know if you know this, but the, the tradition is that if you're on a Stanley Cup championship team, you get the cup for 24 hours and you can do whatever you want with you the Stanley Cup. Each individual does? Yes. Yes, with with a with a a handler, the cup comes to your house. So Bill Clement for whatever reason never got to enjoy custody of the cup back in the 70s was when he was on the Flyers. Many many years later, he gets his opportunity. And 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 he 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 did something terrific. He put it on display at a local school in Bucks County, a vo vocational school, and raised money for a charity. And I helped promote this event in a small way on my radio show. And Bill Clement said to me, uh, I'm going to have the cup at the house later tonight. And if, if you want to come over later, you know, come on over. Well, I felt I'm not going to impose. It's probably just for his family and so forth. So I took my own sons, my three sons, to the public showing of the Stanley Cup. When we got to the school, police were directing traffic. We couldn't get anywhere near. Such was the outpouring of people who wanted to just see the Stanley Cup. That night, mindful of the fact that the cup is going to be at his house, I remember going back and forth with my wife over this because I said, you know, he said, come on over if you want to see the cup. The boys never got to see the cup today. So she thought it was inappropriate. I pulled down his driveway. And I remember going up on the porch, because I wasn't sure I had the right house. There were cars in the driveway, but not so many that you would know something big was going on. And I go up on the porch of this house that I think is Bill Clement's house, and I peer in through the window, and there on the kitchen counter is the Stanley Cup. So I went back out to my car, uh, and I said to the boys, you know, come on. My wife said, this is ridiculous. I'm not getting out of the car. We weren't even invited here. We went inside, and the pictures are in the book where I get to drink from the Stanley Cup. How cool is that? Now, you are, are doing and have done for years media at a national level, right. CNN and satellite radio, um, but you still live in Philadelphia. I do. What keeps you in Philadelphia? I've spent my whole life in a 50-mile radius. 
I grew up in Doylestown in Bucks County. I then went to college in the Lehigh Valley at Lehigh, came into Philadelphia to go to law school at Penn, and then spent 10 years living in the city of Philadelphia, and then moved out to Montgomery County, which is, which is where I am now. I've never had to move professionally for broadcast purposes. The technology keeps advancing, and so virtually every Saturday that I'm delivering my CNN show, I'm doing it from Philadelphia. For the first three or four years, I used to go to New York City and, and do it from the Time Warner Center, but I, there's no need for me to do that. And with regard to radio, all I need is a strong Ethernet connection, and I can be anywhere. So I haven't been forced to leave professionally, and I love it here. I was raised here. My wife and I have raised four kids here. I think the area is terrific. Sometimes doesn't get the the credit that it deserves, but I, you know, I, I love the state of Pennsylvania and I love southeastern Pennsylvania in particular. How do you explain Philadelphia to Pennsylvanians who are not from Philadelphia? It's not the way you think it is. That's usually the first thing that I will say because I think that they regard uh, uh, Philadelphia as being a, a, an entirely, you know, different universe than the rest of the state. And I guess on election night, you know, regardless of what the election might be, if you're looking at a color-shaded blue versus red map, then Philadelphia is always going to appear uh, different. But I've, I've, made, I've, I've made it my work to try and, and convince Pennsylvanians that it's in all of our best interest that Philadelphia be healthy, that we all get along, and that we all regard ourselves as Pennsylvanians. Why do so many Pennsylvanians have disdain for Philadelphia? I think because it's been used as a political wedge issue, that somehow, Pens that somehow Philadelphia doesn't carry it. You know, they all love to root for our teams, though, don't they? <laughs> Especially the Eagles after the... I don't hear any griping from central Pennsylvania about Philadelphia uh, ever since the, uh, the, the, the Eagles were so successful against the Patriots. But I, I think it's been, it's been portrayed as being an other, not really a part of the state, a drain on the state's resources, not representative of our values, whatever our values might be. And I think politicians have effectively used it as a wedge issue. When you look at surveys, um, the Congress is always held in low regard and it, the, the position, uh, impression people have of elected officials tends to be negative. Who among the elected officials you have dealt with have you been impressed with? Uh, at what level? Well, national level. Let's okay. talk about Congress. Uh, okay, I look at I look at Charlie Dent, who is leaving the Congress, and I I, I think that's such a shame because I, I think that Dent has been a very able leader. Who yes, he's a Republican. We know that he's a Republican, but he's he's not doctrinaire. I think he's a bit of a pragmatist, uh, and I think that uh, that he served the Lehigh Valley well. Now, frankly, the best example the best example that I could give to you would be someone who is both a Pennsylvanian and of national stature. And one of my big regrets for all of us is that Tom Ridge never became president. I look at Tom Ridge and I see the total package. You know, a guy who was raised in public housing, who uh, serves in Vietnam, who goes to Harvard, who becomes a public servant, member of Congress, becomes governor, is the nation's first secretary of Homeland Security. I mean, my God, the credentials of this man. And, and Governor Ridge is such a reasonable individual. I think to govern this state as a Republican shows that he, that he had to be appealing to different constituencies. Probably would have been selected by John McCain as his running mate uh, back in the 08 campaign, but for his, his pro-choice 
position. And I, I think, you know, those litmus tests do us all a, a disservice. But Ridge would be at the top of my list. Um, you mentioned Arlen Specter. You were yes. friends with Arlen Specter? Very close friends, yeah. And shame on me for not putting Ar I think of uh, Arlen's no longer with us, but Arlen would be on that list as well. Ar Arlen Specter, I said several times now to you, but in the book, I've been so fortunate to have had exposure to so many interesting and impressive individuals. And, and Arlen was, he was a mentor to me. Um, he was, if not the most brilliant, one of the most brilliant individuals that I've, that I've ever met. You can disagree with Arlen politically, and I did disagree with him on a number of issues over the years, but I always so enjoyed his company. I think that his ethics were beyond reproach. He remains Pennsylvania's longest serving United States Senator. Never a whiff of scandal about him. People will disagree with his votes. People will talk about, you know, Bork or his support of the stimulus or so forth if they, if they want to be negative in their recollection of him. But he was an honest guy who was an intellectual and extremely hardworking. And I don't know what more you can ask for from a public servant. You worked for him? I did. I worked, I worked for him, not, never on the government payroll, but I worked for him in his 1986 re-election campaign against Bob Edgar. And, uh, Frank and, and maintained a friendship ever thereafter. And his, his son, Shannon, and I remain very close friends of 30-plus years. And Frank Rizzo, you mentioned him also. You had, uh, did you work for him? I did. In 1987, I have to keep all these straight, in 1987, Frank Rizzo ran as a Republican against Wilson Good. So this was the rematch. Wilson, Wilson Good was the only individual to ever beat Frank Rizzo in an election. Good trivia. And so Good defeats Rizzo in 83 by a slim margin. And Rizzo, with the guidance of Marty Weinberg, takes a look at the voter registration rolls and says 225,000 Republicans in the city never got to pass judgment on Wilson Good and me. If they'd had the opportunity to vote, I'll bet I'd have captured the lion's share of them. I'll switch. I'll become a Republican. Now everybody gets to vote. Sound strategy, but he was nevertheless unsuccessful. So 1987 was uh, a year that I worked for an entire year on that campaign. What do people misunderstand or understand about Frank Rizzo? I think the, uh, the race issue is at the top of the list. A, a column in the book is a column where I weigh in on the Rizzo statue. And I take the position that the Rizzo statue, and, and you know this is now becoming moot because Mayor Kenny has said it's going to move, but uh, I say that the Rizzo statue is exactly where it should be, which is in front of the Municipal Services Building, not on the City Hall apron. The MSB building traditionally has been the building where city services have emanated from. You have an issue with licensing and inspection. It's in the basement of the MSB building and so on and so forth. So I always thought it was entirely appropriate because say what you will about Rizzo, but Rizzo was all about constituent service. And I like that location, but unfortunately uh, uh, that's not the way it's going to end up. You also have a column on uh, legalizing prostitution. Yes. Is there an issue? You're for it. <laughs> yes. I Look, it's very hard, I think, for you to, to look at this book and say, well, this is a liberal book. Well, this is a conservative. I mean, wh what exactly do you call someone, that would be me, who supported the Iraq invasion but thinks there's too much fighting in the NHL? 
That was another column that I wrote. I don't want to see fighting in hockey. But I thought, because I believed Colin Powell at the time of the UN Security Council presentation, that uh, that, that was necessary. I supported profiling at airports in a post-9-11 world, and I agreed with harsh interrogation methods for Guantanamo detainees. Sounds pretty conservative, but to your point, I think that prostitution should be legalized, and marijuana, the same way. I'm for breaking up this ridiculous, although it's gotten better, monopoly that we have uh, in Pennsylvania on liquor. So, you know, if you go through, and this is just a hundred of more than a thousand columns, but they defy labeling. And to the extent that there's a thesis, I believe that's actually in sync with most Americans' thinking. Not that you have to agree with me on prostitution or on pot or on Gitmo or the other examples, but that on balance, I think that so few of us line up neatly as very conservative or as very liberal, not unless you're a TV personality. So is there a place for someone with your views in either the Republican or Democratic Party today? No, to hear me tell it, and that's why I'm, I'm non-affiliated in Pennsylvania. Um, I was a Republican and a reliable Republican. I voted only for Republican presidential candidates from 1980, Ronald Reagan, until 2008. And in 2008, I voted for Barack Obama and voted for Obama's re-election in 2012 as well. And, 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 and in the interim, in 2010, decided, you know what, this is really not the GOP that I joined in 1980. Have I changed? Undoubtedly, I have. But the party has changed. I think that, that, that religion and politics blend far too much on the GOP side of the aisle. I think the party has become doctrinaire not so compassionate, and there are a whole host of issues where I'm just not comfortable. But nor am I comfortable joining the Democratic ranks either. The D's have gone far too much to the left, and the Republicans have gone far too much to the right. But the candidates who appear on the ballot in November are chosen by the Republicans and Democrats. True. So how can things change so the, the party isn't, the, the final election in November isn't nominated or dominated by those well, two. Well, I would parties. love to see, and Governor Wolf is supportive of this, I would, I would love to see the primary process get opened. You know, why, I, Brian, I have never missed an election for which I've been eligible since 1980. 1980, I turned 18, I registered to vote, and I've, I've, I've never, I've, I've had to undertake heroic measures. Again, this ridiculous system that we have in Pennsylvania where, you, you know, you get one shot at it on a Tuesday between 7 a.m. and 8 p.m., and if you know you're going to be away, then you've, you've got to get an absentee ballot. And by the way, if you look at that paperwork, you've got to sign this affirmation that you're going to be out of state for cause. What business is it of the state? where I'm going to be on election day. This state ought to be thanking me for doing my duty and, and, and wanting to vote. I'd, I'd like to vote at home. I don't even want to go out and, and vote uh, any longer. But, you know, if you learn, because this happened to me two or three years ago, if you learn that you're going to be away after the deadline has passed for an absentee ballot, CNN called me out of town on an election night. I'm like, oh, my God, I haven't voted because I didn't know I was going to be away. You know, now I've got to go to my local county courthouse, find the, the appropriate office to swear out my emergent ballot application. That's BS. You have to physically go there? Yes. You have to physically go there if you find out after the deadline has passed for absentee ballots. This state, I love this state, but this state is deliberately unfriendly to inclusion. And, and this, is the, this is a beef that I have with the Republican Party. The Republican Party wants everybody of a certain stripe to vote. 
But in order for that to change, you have to get Republicans and Democrats in Harrisburg to agree to change what I know. amounts to breaking up their monopoly. True. And, and, and therein lies the, the uphill climb. But, you know, these things can be done. I mean, California now has a, a top two system. They were able to get that through with cooperation among Republicans and Democrats. I think that our state sometimes is a is a throwback. I earlier referenced the uh, uh, the state store system, or now how I go to my local beer dispensary and I've got a guy counting how many six packs I've assembled. Right? I like drinking these craft beers, these these you know these Indian pale ales. I don't know what it means, but it's hoppy, and I like to drink it. And and truly, like they're counting how many beers I have. What business is it of theirs? How many beers I'm going to walk out? there with. So, so we've got to, you know, we've got to come into the 21st century in some respects, and voting is one of those areas. Who's your favorite American president? Both two, two ways, uh, both historically and uh, during your period of voting. So this may seem like a contradiction when I tell you that I put, uh, uh, well, at the, at the top of my list has got to be George Herbert Walker Bush, who only served, who only served one, uh, one term. But I, to me, I think, I think history will treat him better than the electorate did when he ran against Bill Clinton. I just, I, I think that when he ran in 1980, I remember his slogan was, a, a president we won't have to train, which was a reflection of the fact that he'd been successful in business, that he'd been in Congress, that he'd been the head of the CIA, that he'd been the envoy to China, that he'd been the UN ambassador. I mean, truly, and he was the vice president. You know, this true, no, pardon me, he was about to become the vice president. But he had credentials uh, that were a mile long, and I think he had an ethical record to, uh, to boot. And so I, I really thought that he was someone who was well-equipped, served well in the position, because the economy took a turn, he wasn't given the just due that he was deserved, and Bill Clinton was able to beat him. So I would put Papa Bush at the top of my list. Um, I was going to say this may sound like a contradiction because in my, in my time of paying attention, similarly at the top of my list would be both Reagan and Obama. And maybe I'm the only person who's going to have a list that has Reagan and Obama on it, uh, but I would for, for, for vastly different reasons. Well, now that the Barack Obama years are over and they're, they're moving into the past, how, how do they look from in the rearview mirror? The Obama years. Too soon to tell, but I, I, I thought that, I thought that the way Obama acquitted himself on a day-to-day -day basis, uh, the way in which he and Michelle held themselves out, raised those girls. I'm, I'm, I'm going to get to the substance, but I just want to say because I don't think this gets said enough, that on a, the the way in which he personally comported himself, without ever, in my opinion, without ever bringing disrepute to that office. And I think these things often now, as I see what's going on on a day-to-day on -day basis, there was none of this topsy-turvy, ups and downs, embarrassing stories. I mean, you know, no drama is what uh, they said about him, and it, and it really was. And there was something to be said for the constancy that, that, that he provided. I don't think that the record was as liberal as the, uh, the uh, critics would make it out to be. You know, he never came for your guns. The Affordable Care Act was something that he borrowed from the Heritage Foundation, which Mitt Romney then put into effect in, in Massachusetts. He, he was never the other left-leaner uh, that they tried to portray him. I thought that he was a relatively centrist, steady, competent, smart leader. 
And Ronald Reagan was the other name you mentioned. Reagan, Reagan, uh, I, you know, maybe I'm looking back with rose-colored glasses, but I think of Reagan as, as being an inspirational figure who hasn't been equaled in that regard since 1980 through 1988. Is America still the shining city on a hill that Ronald Reagan talked about? I think that it is. I think that sometimes we, we get bogged down in these partisan differences in a way that's so healthy and so, so much caused by individuals with a profit motive. I mean, uh, there's another theme in the book where I, I take a look at, at how did we get where we are with this, this sharp divide and the partisanship and the incivility. There was, there was partisanship in the 80s on Reagan's watch but there was not polarization. 60% of the Senate on Ronald Reagan's watch was comprised of moderates, 60%. You know, Arlen Specter and John Hines uh, and Alan Simpson and Nancy Kassebaum and Bob Dole, and I could give you five or 10 more, were all moderate members of the Republican Senatorial Caucus. They're all gone today and not just through attrition. And I think that a large driver of the wedge has been the rise of a partisan media. Individuals whose objective is not to bring about good governance, but to bring about more eyes to TV shows, ears to radio programs, and mouse clicks to websites by stirring the pot and driving us farther apart from one another in much the same way that the Russians apparently tried to do in the 2016 campaign. Well, is there any reason to believe that that process will reverse itself when there is the profit motive with the left and right television networks driving ratings? Maybe not. Uh, only, only, and I speak on this subject across the country. When, when groups bring me in to speak, this is, this is what I spend 50 minutes addressing. How did the partisan divide get where it is and what would it take to, to get us out? There has to be a recognition on all of our part that our news slash entertainment choices have consequences. So if you are in one of those ideological bumpers where you're getting all your data from the left and you're hating the right or vice versa, you're adding to the problem and you got to mix it up, step out of your bubble and, and have more interactions with people who disagree with you. What's your view on immigration? My view on immigration is that the DACA kids or now adults who came here through that program ought to be protected they, through no fault of their own, find themselves living uh, in this country. And, and I, I think so many of them are good people who've been maligned in the debate. So at the top of my list would be making sure that they're never sent home. And I think that it would be impractical to think that those hundreds of thousands, seven or 800,000 would all of a sudden be gathered up. This is not going to happen. So why do we fool ourselves with that kind of a, a conversation? But beyond that, I mean, I, I, I respect the role that immigration has played. I think of my family coming from Eastern Europe on both sides of my family. Uh, I, I think it's, it's important for the continued lifeblood of the country that there be a process. I don't want to close the borders, but I want people to play by the rules. Where'd your family come from? My mother's side of the family from the former Yugoslavia, from Montenegro. I guess I can now say Montenegro and people know what I'm talking about. My father's side of the family was from the Austria-Hungarian Empire. I've traced it. I'm totally into the whole lineage thing and Ancestry.com and, and, and love it. And I, I get on it when I have time, then get off it. And for the rest of my life, I'll be trying to figure it out with precision. With regard to my mother's side, we've been to the village where 
her parents came from. On my father's side of the family, I can trace the point of origin before they came to the United States in the 19th century to one of two different villages in modern-day Poland. Are you optimistic or pessimistic about the uh, future of the United States? Short-term pessimistic because I don't see any quick fix to the polarization. Long-term, I believe we get out of this. I'm just not sure how soon and how ugly it has to get before we do. Call me delusional. I would like to think that if some well-credentialed independent candidates stepped forward and, and ran for high office on a senatorial level, say, or on a presidential level, and, and said, we, we've got to stop this, neither this side nor this side represents where most Americans are and would try and provide leadership to that group, I think that woman or that man would be rewarded. And I'd like to see that happen. What keeps you going? Well, I'm genuinely interested in these issues. I, I, if I didn't enjoy discussing and thinking about these things, then I wouldn't do it. I, I would do something else. So I, I think at my core, there's genuine interest in that which I get to talk about on a day-to-day -day basis. But I also get to meet and interact with so many different interesting people. And it's, it's not just at a, at a celebrity level. Oftentimes I'll be asked, well, who's the most interesting radio guest that you've ever had on your program? If I had to pick one, it wouldn't be a president. I've had the privilege of interviewing several of them. They're frankly not that great a guest. You know, the best guests are everyday people who are in the midst of their 15 minutes of fame. Something has happened to them that has captured the nation's attention, and I now get to interview them about what that debate or controversy or story might be about. That's what I enjoy the most. I like a good story. And by being on the radio or writing a column or being on TV, I get to tell good stories. And once again, if people want to listen to your radio program, where do they hear it? So it's Sirius XM. Now remember, Sirius XM, Brian, is what came with that car when you first got it and they gave you a six-month trial and then for some reason you may not have reviewed or renewed your subscription. Sirius XM's POTUS channel, which is 124, you can Google me and you can easily find this. I'm on from 9 to noon every day taking calls on whatever the issues of the day are, and then the show replays every night from 9 p.m. to midnight. So it's, it's six hours of me a day. Your television show? CNN, 9 a.m. East on Saturday morning, and then it replays at 6 p.m. in the East. And you have a website? I do, smirconish.com, and use it as sort of a clearinghouse of independent thinking. I write a lot of my own content for the website and post other people's. And lastly, your column. Sunday Philadelphia Inquirer, and in the book, Clowns to the Left of Me, Jokers to the Right. And this is the cover of the book, Clowns to the Left of Me, Jokers to the Right. We've been speaking with author Michael Smirkanish. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.